if you really do exist, and you've made all this, I figure you must have some reason. I mean, what if the whole universe exists so that this planet can exist, so I can exist? If that's true, then you must really want me to be here. Honestly, that blows my mind more than anything. Hey, good morning. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? It was great. I love the Thanksgiving holiday, the day built around giving thanks. Wonderful time. And it's a great time of year. Phenomenal weather, right? Just beautiful weather and um, great food. I get, we got to travel down, Morales and I and Stephen, and have lunch with my oldest son and his family. And it's just, just a marvelous, marvelous week. And how about them cowboys? Oh. <laughs> no, sorry about that. Couldn't resist that. We're in a brand new series uh, called Beginnings. Through the years, you know, if, if you're a new springer, you know I, I'm usually in a series. But for me, on an emotional level, um, I've always been excited about my Christmas series. I always felt like whatever I got for Christmas that God was kind of leading me toward was kind of special. And, and I've really enjoyed the Christmas series, even going back into the early 90s here when I was pastor. Uh, but this, this year is probably the most unusual Christmas series that I've ever experienced. And, and I have to be honest, I have a few butterflies flying around, even though this is the third time I brought this talk this weekend. Because... Um, it's, uh, it's a challenging series. I think you'll understand why when I get into it. Uh, just a little background. I struggle with the idea that the biggest holiday of our year, Christmas, is encountering some pushback from just the concept or the idea of God in public culture. I struggle with that disconnect, or might I even say contradiction, because Retailers depend on the Christmas season for, I'm told, about half of their income. And you think about what would drive people like you and me to spend as much money as we spend on Christmas. I mean, if, if I'm celebrating the birth of the Son of God, then I understand why I turn on all the lights, spend more money than I can afford to buy gifts to show people my love and my affection. I can understand giving... A whole season to a holiday if I'm celebrating something as gigantic as the coming of the Son of God into our world. But I'm I'm dealing with the reality that in our culture today, God is being edged more and more out of public life. And and we have have school districts in America that no longer have a Christmas concert or Christmas celebration. Because after all, the idea of God is somehow offensive. Now, how do you juggle that? How do you juggle the most important holiday of the year, which very much celebrates the coming of the Savior of the world into it, and yet at the same time, pushing God out? Do you struggle with that as I do? I mean, even if I were totally secular and didn't, didn't have the idea of God in my life, I would still struggle with that disconnect. And of course, our culture is doing this dance to try to keep the Christmas celebration into our calendar because after all, we depend on it so much economically. We have to find some way to keep it into our calendar and yet excise God. And so our culture is coming up with some of the most creative stuff like 
it's a winter holiday, and we are celebrating the winter solstice. Well, I don't have a problem with celebrating winter, I guess. But when I think about as much as I'm getting ready to spend, I have a hard time spending all that money because the days are getting longer. I struggle with that. And there's a larger question, though, that I think all of us need to deal with. Why is God being pushed out more and more from public life? Did he, what did he do? Did Jesus do something offensive while I wasn't looking? Did, did, he, did he do something to be treated with disres- such disrespect? I mean, has God behaved badly? I mean, I understand. Isn't it interesting how that people sometimes say, oh, you can't talk about God in public life. But we can continue to talk about politicians, even though many of them have failed us. We can continue to talk about people in entertainment, even though that many of them have lives that are moral cesspools. We, we can continue to talk about sports figures, even though many of them disappoint us. And all I'm saying is this. I don't have any issue with any of that. All I'm saying is this, is that if we're pushing God out of public life, what did he do to cause us to treat him with such disrespect? Well, I know what the answer would be. Someone would come back and say, well, Mark, it's all about the Constitution. The Constitution prohibits any sort of exercise of anything relational to God or even pro- pro- prohibits the mention of God in public life. Well, you have to try that on somebody else because I'm so old I can remember a very different America, and some of you can too. When we were on our way to Oklahoma this week, Morales and I were talking, and we, like old people do, we reminisce. And we go so far back together, we can go back for years and reminisce. Because not only did we go to the high school together, we went to middle school together. And I didn't know her in middle school, but we were laughing about the fact that she would have heard my voice every morning. Because in the eighth grade, I was in speech class, and part of what we did, we were the first period class, and part of what we did in speech is we made the announcements over the intercom. There was a mic jack in the speech room, and every morning I would lead a group of students in leading the announcements. And I would open up every morning and say, good morning to everybody, and I would do a few lead announcements, and a few other kids would do announcements. And then I would always close out the announcements every morning, not by my design, but by the principal's instructions. I would close out every morning reading about six verses of Scripture And I didn't go to private school. I didn't go to Christian school. I didn't go to parochial school. I went to a public school, an inner city school in Fort Worth, Texas. And that was just 40 years ago. We read scripture every morning. I remember the Easter program. My assignment was to read the story of the resurrection from the Bible. I remember very clearly in rehearsal one day, I was reading the story of the resurrection, and I got to the place where I read the words, He is risen. And the drama coach stopped me, and he almost reached out and grabbed me by the shoulders. He said, listen, Mark, when you come to those words, He is risen, you put every bit of energy you have into those three words. Most of us, that's a world long gone. For many of us, that's a world we've never known. Because in 1962, the Supreme Court started playing fast and loose with the Constitution. The very first thing that our Constitution guarantees you is the right to freedom of religion. Our founding fathers and mothers had come from Europe mostly, and they had seen situations in which there was a a religion that had been prescribed by the government. 
And everybody had to be an adherent to that. And they had lived under that tyranny. And on top of that, they had seen centuries of warfare between countries that had state religions. And they said, we don't want that. We want a place, we want a nation where people are free to worship God and they're not inhibited at all. There was also an establishment clause. And some of you are familiar with that. And the establishment clause simply said, and by the way, I'm 120% in favor of the establishment clause. It just said that the government could not select a particular religion and demand that people become adherents to that religion. And clearly, I like that. Congress could never make a law that would select a particular religion and demand that everyone be part of that. But the Supreme Court declaring that the Constitution is a living and breathing document decided in 1962 that the Establishment Clause meant that no prayer could be prescribed in school. And I agree particularly with that specific decision. But that became, a, that became a springboard for all kinds of decisions in the last 50 years to just demand more and more and more that God be pushed out of public life because it is constitutional. I think that would have been a shock to the framers of our country who prayed for hours in prayer meetings in Congress, which, by the way, I would be glad today if Congress would have a few prayer meetings. I think they desperately need them. But the so-called Establishment Clause, as I say, has been used to just push God out. And, And now we're living in a culture where God is becoming more and more public enemy number one. And all I'm saying is why? And trust me, you have to understand, I'm not on a a case to make America a theocracy. That's the last thing that I want to do. All I'm saying is, I'm concerned about you and me. And all of us who are part of New Spring, what do we think about God? Because I believe this with all my heart. And you need to understand, guys, because somebody could come here, forgive me for breaking the sentence, somebody could come here today and say, Mark, I just don't like organized religion. Trust me, you have never met anybody who hates organized religion more than this guy right here. I despise it because of the way it corrupts God and corrupts the ideas of Christianity. Trust me, I hate it. And I know that many people who have bad ideas about God, they've been messed around by organized religion. And trust me, I am totally sympathetic with that. I understand. What I'm talking about today is you and I owe it to ourselves to ask ourselves, what's the truth about God? What do I believe about God? Because I am convinced with all my soul that there is going to come a day when all of us are going to have to give an account for the lives that we live. And we won't do it on Oprah. No, but we do it on CNN or Fox. No, but we do it in the halls of Congress or in some courtroom here in the world. We're going to give an account to God. And I think we need to be prepped for that. We need to be ready for that. We need to know what is it that I believe? What is it that you believe about God? In all these years of pastoring, I've learned that people have some really weird ideas about God. And probably that's because of weasels who stand in the platform of churches and don't really tell people what the Bible has to say about God. I want to make sure I'm not one of those. So we're going back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3 for this series. It's called Beginnings, and we're just going back to the book that means beginnings. And we're looking at what God has to say. And in these five messages that I'm going to bring, all I'm going to do is pull out snippets of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and talk about them today. It's in the beginning, God. Next week, it's God created. Week 3 is in his image. Week 4 is male and female. And week 5, which is the Christmas Eve ceremony and celebration and church service, Christmas Eve is going to be the seed of the woman, which is all about Mary. It's the very first promise that Jesus was going to come into our world. Did you know what happened in Genesis 3? We're talking about that Christmas Eve. Today, it's in the beginning, God. 
The very first four words in our Bible, in our English Bible, is in the beginning, God. Don't you find it interesting that God never attempts to prove himself in, those, in the very beginning of the Bible? Because people have said that to me. Well, Mark, if God would just prove himself to me, I would believe in him. Don't you find it curious that God never says why we should believe in God? It's just like my card. Before there ever was a beginning, there was God. Hey, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not a smart man, but I think I can make a fairly good argument, fairly coherent argument for God. I'm an old debater from high school and college days. A lot of people have the idea that if you've never debated, a lot of people have the idea that debating is just two people getting in a room and arguing with each other, and nothing can be further from the truth. If you've ever debated, some of you have. I know some of you young guys, high school guys are in, are in debate. I've, I've talked to some of you. But if, you're, if you've ever debated, you understand that there's a topic, that you have the same topic all year long. And if you go to a tournament, you oscillate. You go back and forth. One, one round, you're affirmative, and you're arguing for change. The next round, you're negative, and you're arguing for the status quo. And you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I think that's one of the things that's helped me as a minister through the years, because people come to me sometimes and say, Mark, when I listen to you, you answer my questions. And what you need to understand is when I'm getting ready for a message, I don't just think about what it is that I'm going to say. I instantly argue against it, and I go back and forth and back and forth, and I try to anticipate what people's objections would be to this. And, 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 and I'm a person that faith comes hard for. I have to know. I don't just, I don't just respond to indoctrination. I have to know. So I think as I stand before you today, I think I can make a fairly decent argument for the existence of God. I could come from the cosmological angle. And I could say that we know, of course, that for every, every effect, there has to be a cause. We look at the universe as it is, with all of its hugeness, vastness. We imagine a universe that, that is unimaginable. At the same time, we can look at a cell under a microscope and watch mitosis or cell, in cell division. We can look at that stuff and we think, wow, this universe is so vast. There has to be a cause. I know, we'll get into this next week. There are those who say, oh, it's all, all, all happened by accident. There were the rolls of the cosmic dice, and voila, we have the world. That's a naivety, naivety I, I don't think I can engage in. It's like the old farmer who went to the Grand Canyon, and he stood overlooking that vast expanse, and he let out a low whistle, and he said, something big had to happen here. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say when I see the world. When I see the human body with all of its intricacy, when I, when I imagine the interrelationship of all living things on the earth and the planet, and then that planet just being a pinprick in the vast universe, there had to be an awfully big cause. I think I could make that argument today. I think I could come to you from the teleological perspective, which says that everything, I mean, that, that whenever you see design, whenever you see purpose, rather, there's design. People, people have the idea that somehow everything living is the result of an accident. Can you just imagine your body for a moment? You have a neurological system, circulatory system, reproductive system. By the way, system, duh. I think I could just talk about purpose here. That it's so apparent to all of us, just, just purpose. And, and purpose says there was a designer. I think I can make that argument today. I wouldn't be afraid of it. I'd sure take that position in the debate any day of the week. I think it comes from the anthropological standpoint. 
because human, human life as we know it is, there's a sort of moral consciousness that's, that's universal. People from all cultures have a, a general sense of right and wrong. People from all cultures just know inherently that it's wrong still, that it's wrong to kill. Not that people live up to that, but we know we have a sort of an internal conscience. Where does that come from? So yeah, I, I think I could come and make a pretty good argument for the existence of God today, but it just impresses me that God doesn't do that. He just says, in the beginning, God, here's my card. I was thinking about that and trying to figure out how to explain that. And then I started thinking, it was like, in fact, this idea came to me in my sleep. When you're ADD, you can work in your sleep. It's just great. <laughs> but every once in a while, Ralph and I will go, during spring, pray to homes, fall, pray to homes. We'll go and look at homes. I don't want to buy a house. Just go look. Did you do that? And then there's, usually there's a slip of models in a neighborhood. Four, five, six homes in a line. You know, you have this little fence, and you walk from house to house to house. And, and every time I go look at, at homes, there's always a little sign in the flower bed or in front of the house or on the porch that tells me who built the house, the builder's name. Do you realize in all those times that I've gone to look at houses, there never has been a situation in which a builder tried to prove that his company exists? Just the sign. I mean, the builder just wants me to know this was once an empty lot. And now I'm standing in his house. Now, if I'm a hemisphere away, and I know half a world away or whatever, and someone says there was a builder in Wichita, Kansas named such and such, I'm saying, I don't know if that person exists or not, but when I'm standing in his house, it's hard to deny his existence. And that is basically what God is saying in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He's saying, You're standing in my house, and I'm the builder. In the beginning, God. Wow. I love that. I love that. Well, I have six things I want to give you today. Boy, I'm always nervous when a minister says he has six points. We'll go through these pretty quick. I want to just introduce God to you. And in, in, in the moment I say that, I'm laughing inside because I know I can't really introduce God. You know, and that's the challenge because even those of us who have a relationship with God, we struggle with that because we, we know God and yet our capacity for understanding him is so small. Let me explain it this way. Imagine for a moment that in this glass, I have salt water from the Pacific Ocean. Okay? Let's just say water from the Pacific Ocean is in this glass. Is the Pacific Ocean in this glass? Essentially it is, because this glass contains the Pacific Ocean. The problem is it doesn't contain all the Pacific Ocean. So with, given the capacity that this glass has, limited as it is, if someone gave me certain facts about the Pacific Ocean, and all I know is what I have here, I'm saying to myself, I'm going to struggle with that. For instance, if someone said to me, there are giant sharks that live in the Pacific Ocean that are 20 feet long, I'm thinking, I don't see that. <laughs> Suppose someone tried to explain currents to me. I could swish the glass around, but I, don't, I can't get a current going or a tide or, or surfing. I don't see that happening here. <laughs> Here's a good one. Suppose someone said to me, Mark, there are giant battleships weighing thousands of tons that sail on top of the Pacific Ocean. I'm thinking, no, wait a minute. I can prove that's not true. I got a penny here. penny doesn't weigh thousands of tons. It sinks right to the bottom. It's not possible. You say, well, Mark, your problem is not that the Pacific Ocean can't sustain all these challenges that someone's talks about, the issue is your capacity to, to hold it doesn't bear up under what you hear. And I think that's a challenge for us because when we hear things about God, it's like, 
well, I have God in my life and I believe in him, but to believe that God is always working for my good when things happen like the penny sinking that don't seem to be good, the issue is our capacity to understand him is limited. And even when we learn certain things like the Trinity or God's infinite nature, it's a challenge for us because our capacity is so slight. And that's why we have to go back to the Bible. I want to give you six statements that the Bible makes about God, and I'll be through with today's talk. Here's the first one. God is infinite. God is infinite. People ask me through the years, who made God? Well, if you ever found out who made God, that person would be God. And then, well, who made that person? Well, then that person would be God. (laughs) Fact of the matter is, God is infinite. God has no beginning and God has no end. We've already sang that this morning. Moses wrote it this way in Psalm 90, verse 2. He said, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God, everlasting to everlasting. The Hebrew word there means vanishing point or horizon. Moses is saying as far back as any human being can see, God was already there. And as far as anyone can see in the future, God will be there. In fact, it's so cool. And I don't, I got to, man, so many things I'd love to say to you this morning. But remember when God called Moses? And Moses was a little freaked about that. And he said to God, I can't tell people who has called me because they believe in those days that God's name could not be pronounced. And Moses is saying, it's a deal breaker. They're going to ask me who sent me. And I don't know your name and I can't say it. Nobody can pronounce it. So therefore, you can't use me. And God is saying, Moses, just go back and tell them this. God said, tell them I am that I am has sent you. The Hebrew for that means the self-existent one. In other words, the one who was not made, the one who was not created, the one who has always been here and the one who will always be here. I know it's a challenge for us because see, here's the deal. Everything that we know about has a beginning, but we live in a material world. You remember God is spirit. So consequently, what we're trying to do when we're saying, when did God have his beginning? We're trying to interpret the creator from the vantage point or the prism of the creation. I got a lesson on this when I was like in the third or fourth grade. It was kind of like the first time that I was ever presented with any kind of geometry. Teacher walked to the chalkboard. And she drew a line and put an arrow on either end of the line. And she said, guys, this is a line. You know why it has arrows on each end? Because she said it it goes into infinity in both directions. And I'm thinking, people tell me, how can, it's like it's a deal breaker. If I can't figure out how God got started, can he really exist? Because after all, how can anything or anyone exist with no point of beginning and no point of ending? And yet, third grade geometry. I remember that she went to the board and drew a line with a point of beginning and a point of ending. She said, guys, I've drawn a line segment for you. She said, these really don't exist. They're just our way of measuring a a, a distance within a line. And then I still remember, even though I was in elementary school, because it was a moment that I really liked, because it gave me an idea. She, She drew a point of beginning and a line and an arrow at the end. She said, I've drawn a ray for you. It has a point of beginning, but no point of ending. And I thought, that's like me. God is the line with no beginning and no ending. I had a point of beginning, you know. I was born into our world on August 25th, 1956. I mean, obviously I existed before that in my mother's womb, but I had a point of beginning. But God, this is the cool thing. I love this. God has invited us into his world of infinity. Because when he made us, he made us never dying souls. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible talks about the coming of Jesus 
And it says that Jesus will come back and he will take us away with him. And then these words, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is God's way of saying that God has invited you and me into the infinite. But we start with that today, that God is a God of infinity. Now somebody could say, well, wait a minute, Mark, it is just so hard for me to imagine God existing before the meter of time was running. Hey, it's cooler than that. Because do you realize that in God's mind, he was interacting with you before the time ever started measuring? Let me read three verses to you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the Bible says, Even before he made the world, God loved us. Realize that? In God's mind, before there ever was time, God, God loved you. And he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Titus 1, 2 says, This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, look at this, promised them before the world began. Man, some people have such a crazy idea of God when he made the world. And, and I've heard some of this in religion. That God made this world, and he made man and woman, and they sinned. And God is saying, oh, no, what shall I do? I've got to figure something out. That's crazy. God knew what was going to happen. I mean, God wanted a big family, and he made a world. And he knew before he made the world, he was going to give two people free will. And that's why all the evil in the world. But if we didn't have free will, how could we turn around and love him from our hearts? God didn't want robots. He wanted children. And so he made the world. He made Adam and Eve. He knew clearly what they were going to do. But before he made the world, he already had a promise that he was going to send a Savior into the world to save us from the sin that hadn't even happened yet. In Revelation 17, the Bible talks about people who will follow the Antichrist. Listen to this. And the people who belong to this world whose names, look at this, were not written in the book of life before the world was made. Are you a Christ follower? Well, if you are, do you realize that before Adam was ever, was ever made or created, that your name was already written in the census book of heaven before there was ever a world? So the question is not, how can God exist before time? It's just so cool to realize that even before time existed, God was thinking about you. I love that. God is infinite. God is good. I know that some would challenge that because bad things happen in the world, but as I already said, God had to give free will for us to be able to worship him. And in our free will, six billion people on the planet, we mess things up pretty good. But the Bible says this, the Lord, and there are so many verses in the Bible that say God is good, but this is my favorite. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. You say, Mark, I don't even believe in God, and yet God is still good to you. I mean, just think about the goodness of God. I mean, just the way he made the world. Isn't it cool that God made the earth and earth tones? I mean, he could have made a pink sky, you know, an orange ground. I mean, God, is, God is good. I mean, I, I think, just think about the food that we eat. If I was an atheist, an orange would just freak me out. Look at the delicious dessert, and God puts it in a wrapper. And don't even get me started about bananas. I mean, they come with a zipper. How cool is that? God is good. I mean, I've lived here for almost 25 years, and I almost feel like a Kansan now. And I I drive during, I've come to love harvest season. Sometimes I just get in my car, and I drive and see those beautiful fields of grain. 
I think about Kansas being the breadbasket of the world. We feed people all over this planet. And I look out in those beautiful fields and I, I think about, you know, children in Africa who are going to get bread from these fields. And how, how does that happen? That these stalks that grow out here on the prairie, that God made a way for grain to be there in those stalks, that that grain is used for so many products that keep people alive. God is good. He's good to everyone, the Bible says. Let me take you to another place. God is a person. <laughs> In the mid-70s, we had this movie come out, and sequels have come out through the years, called Star Wars. And there was a sort of mantra that everybody would run around quoting, putting on bumper stickers and stuff back in those days. May the force be with you. And people have said this to me through the years. Well, Mark, God is kind of like the force. In other words, he's impersonal. He's sort of like the juice, the energy. He's the power behind everything. And he doesn't really have any personhood. Well, the Bible presents a very different God. Because God is not only a person, he is capable of emotions. One of the weeks in this series, I have a talk that I'm going to bring to you called In His Image and how that we were made in his image. And so many of the components that we have emotionally and spiritually are components that God has. He just made us with what he has. For instance, the Bible talks about God grieving. You ever think about that? In fact, Jesus, of course, was God. And in Luke chapter 18, the Bible says that he he wept. It's hard to imagine, but God grieves. Not only that, but God, knowing how often I experience this, I'm glad to know that God experiences frustration. In Psalm 81, 13, God says, oh, that my people would listen to me. God experiences joy. This is my favorite. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm your fears. (laughs) This is incredible. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I was amazed as I was prepping for this message. How many times the Bible says that God delights in you? I mean, you pump God up. He loves you so much that when you do something right, God is so excited in heaven. And this is hard for me to believe if I didn't read it in the Bible. But the Bible says God makes up songs about you. Boy, I can't wait to get to heaven to hear some of those, huh? You know, we get pretty excited. We worship here at New Spring. We, we move around. We get really excited. Well, that's cool because God is moving around. He's excited. The Bible says he's dancing over us and making up songs of joy because we're his children. He delights in us. One of the most common emotions that the Bible talks about that God has is anger. But I'm so glad that in Psalm 86, verse 15, the Bible says, You, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I could go on and on and on, preach the whole sermon about this, but simply put, the Bible tells us God is a person. Here's a challenge God is Trinity, He's one God in three persons. Wow, this is true. You can see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the second verse of the Bible, it says the Spirit of God moved over the waters, the third person of the Trinity. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. What are we celebrating in Christmas? We're celebrating the Son coming into our world. Hey, guys, when you see the manger scene and you see Jesus, the little baby Jesus lying in the manger, you need to understand that's not where he began. He was not man who became God. He was God who became human. 
In fact, I'm going to read to you from John's Gospel, chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, the word, notice the word, the W there is capitalized. This is a proper noun. It's, it's referencing Jesus. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And somebody can say, well, Mark, now how do you know that that's about Jesus? Verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. How cool is that? When Jesus came into our world, he didn't get started. He'd been from eternity past. God is a trinity. I got to hustle through this, but every once in a while, someone will say, well, Mark, now wait a minute. I'd struggle with this idea that God could be one God and three persons. Maybe it's three manifestations. Maybe in the old covenant, he was the father. And then for 33 years, he was the son. And after Jesus ascended, now he's the Holy Spirit. Well, you got some issues if, if you're thinking that. Because for one thing, in John 17, when Jesus is praying to the father in that intercessory prayer, who was he talking to? And more so than that, at the baptism of Jesus, you got all three members of the deity being represented. You have Jesus being baptized, the Father speaking from heaven, and the Holy Spirit coming as a dove. I, I don't understand it. I just know that God is Trinity. God said, let us make man in our image. Number five, God is light. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the Bible says, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. Practically speaking, what does that mean? God is light. It means that God is intelligence and truth. There are many people in our world today who have intelligence, but they don't know the truth. In fact, the Bible talks about them, says they're always learning, but they're never able to figure it out. They have intelligence, but not the truth. Wherever God is, there's always a combination of intelligence and truth. Do you realize everything bows to truth? I know there's this debate. We'll get into it next week. There's a debate between religion and science. Both religion and science have to bow to truth. Religion has, I mean, listen, if somebody puts the evidence on the table scientifically and says this happened and the evidence is there clearly for everyone to see, then we have to bow to that because everything bows to truth. And by the same token, if God's message of faith is undisputable, then we have to accept that because everything bows to truth. And the Bible says this about God. God is light. He is intelligence and truth. And wherever God is, there's illumination. Many of us have experienced this. <laughs> First of all, we've experienced it in a physical realm. You ever try to walk through your house when it's dark, get up in the night? I do. What do we do? Oh, step on stuff, bang ourselves into the wall, hit our head, because we're trying to walk in darkness. You flip on the light, that doesn't happen, hopefully. <laughs> For many of us, we can remember life that way. We were in darkness. And what did we do? We hurt ourselves. We injured ourselves. We did things that were self-destructive, things destructive to ourselves and destructive to others. Why? Because we were trying to walk in darkness. We, we thought we were smart. We thought we had it figured out, but we really didn't. And now that we've come to know God, it's like, wow, the light is on. And most of the time, how many of us can look back on our lives before we had God in our lives and we say, what were we thinking? It's because God is light. And now I come 
the most surprising thing of all. If you tell me there's a God big enough to make a universe, I sort of assume that. If you tell me that this God is majestic and powerful, I assume that. If you tell me that God is good, and I look at how this earth is such a blessing to us, I assume that. If you tell me that this great God is a God of truth and light, I would think that follows. There's only one thing about God that doesn't follow. There's one thing about God that totally amazes me. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, I read three words. God is love. I'm not amazed that God is great. I'm amazed that he loves me. I'm amazed that he knows me. Do you, do you, Jesus was trying to explain how well God knows us when he was on the earth, because obviously Jesus knew. You know what he said? Jesus said, he knows the number of hairs on your head. Do you know that? In my case, this is declining balance. <laughs> Always. Do you, do you know how many hairs are on your head? Some of you guys shave your heads. You say, yeah, Mark, I know, but the rest of us. Do you realize that means God knows you better than you know yourself? I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth because I don't know exactly what he was inferring. But I'm guessing, we get to heaven, I'll ask him, and if I'm right, I'm going to tell you, I told you so. But I'm guessing that what Jesus was trying to say is this. Listen, if he knows what's on top of your head, he sure knows what's going on inside. And he loves you. God knows you, and he loves you. Well, how do we know God loves us? We don't have to struggle too much at that because it's given to us in the next verse. The Bible says God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God loved you so much, he couldn't bear to let you go. Our sins separate us from God. That's the stuff that we do this ungodly. God has a way of thinking, a way of operating. Unfortunately, we're sort of messed up. And we can say Adam and Eve got us in this mess, but the truth of the matter is, if we'd been there, we'd have probably done the same thing. And God could have let us go. I mean, after all, he just created us. I mean, God could have let, let us spin out into a black hole, but God loved you and me too much to let us go. And amazingly, he sent the second member of the Trinity into our world to be born human and God at the same time so that he could live for us, so that he could pinch hit for us and live that perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And then after living the life that we couldn't live, he laid down on the cross to take the penalty that we should have taken. Oh, listen, guys. We celebrate Christmas, and it's beautiful, and it should be, but let us never forget that when Jesus came into our world, he came on a rescue mission. It was a 911 call when Jesus came. But God loved you too much to let you go. And you may be here today and you say, Mark, I don't even know if I can even believe in a God. Well, would you just be open? Would you be open? Hey, I'm not trying to jam you. I'm just trying to let you know that all the stuff you may have heard from religion may have been totally messed up. 
that there's a God who loves you. And not only does he love you, he wants a personal relationship with you. He wants you to talk to him. He wants to talk to you. He wants to interact in your life. He wants to be your father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the start that we've gotten to make today. I just pray that your Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, would speak to us in a richness and a fullness that takes us past our previous conceptions of God. Help us, Lord. We're so frail. Our capacities are so small. We do want to know you. We want to love you. We want to worship you. In Jesus' name. Would you still pray with me for a moment, please? I just read to you a verse that says God loves you, and the way he loves you is he made a way for you to have an everlasting relationship so that he could invite you into infinity. But it's a gift, and God will not force himself on anyone. What Jesus did for you, you can't earn. You shouldn't even try because you'll mess it up if you do. God just wants you to receive Jesus as a gift. And how do you receive a gift? Just reach out and take it. Throughout the years in the Bible, what we see is we see people that just prayed and invited Jesus into their life. Remember the thief on the cross? He just said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. So anybody who prays and invites Jesus in, and Romans 10 verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you've never called him, I want to give you a chance to do it. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. I'm going to pray it slowly, and you can repeat it after me. The words are not what's important. What's important is what you mean in your heart. You're in a person. But if you're ready to invite Jesus into your life, why don't you pray with me right now? Dear Jesus, I believe you died for me. And I believe you arose from your grave and that you're alive right now listening to me. Thank you for dying for me. I trust you to be my Savior and my Lord. Please forgive me of my sins and make me God's child. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the biggest moment of your life. I have a gift that I've prepared for you because it doesn't happen so quickly, but I have a gift. It's just some cool stuff. It's got some DVDs and information that will help you know what it means to follow Jesus. Totally free. If you just pray with me, I want to give it to you. When you came in today, you got a worship card. It looks something like this. And, and if you find the part that's got the little picture of the packet that I just talked about, all you got to do is just check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Put your name and address on there. Detach the card. In a few moments, there's going to be an offering bag that comes by. If you, if you want me to mail it to you, you can just drop it in the bag, and I'll mail it to you. If you're like me and you don't like to wait, you don't have to wait. If you have just a few extra moments, I'm going to point right behind the camera operators. If you went straight out into the lobby, there are two zones called New Spring uh, Store and Guest Services. You can go to either one of them and just take the card. They won't hassle you. They won't mess with you at all. They won't ask you any questions or stalk you. All you got to do is just say, hey, pray with Mark. You can give them the card, and they'll give you the packet, and you take it with you. Wow, I cannot wait for next week. It's called God Created, and we're going to have a great time as we get together.